0: please join me in again in 1st Thessalonians chapter 1 1st Thessalonians chapter 1 thank you to all those who led us in musical worship this morning it's been a blessing to our souls it's difficult to capture in only one concept what the difference is between true believers true followers of Christ And those who are not genuine followers of Christ, you could put it more than one way, we could put it in doctrinal terms what the difference is, or we could put it in terms of lifestyle differences, there is a difference, but we could also put it in terms of both, both doctrine and lifestyle. Many Bible passages actually do that, including our passage today, which is verse 10, only verse 10 of First Thessalonians chapter 1. Here we find doctrine that directly impacts how we live. Therefore, we do find here a clear difference between true believers and unbelievers, true believers who are following Christ and those who merely profess to do that or deny it completely. Now, in our last couple of studies of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we noted the fact that the church in Thessalonica, this new young church in Thessalonica, was known as a church committed to applying truth to their lives, which meant that they were recognized as being a healthy church, a healthy church. And that spiritual health made it clear then, that they were truly chosen of God. If you remember in verse 4, believers are called that, chosen of God. They're called brethren. We're brothers and sisters, part of a family. We're beloved. God has set His affection on us, but it also mentions His choice of us. True believers are chosen by God. Spiritual health makes that clear. More specifically, we have studied these confirmations of their spiritual health. Just as a quick review, one confirmation that they were spiritually healthy as individuals in a church, number one, joyfulness and suffering. We saw that in verses 6 and 7. We found there in 6 and 7 that the Holy Spirit enabled these believers to have joy, plus they had good examples of what that looked like in Christ and in Paul and the other missionaries who had ministered in Thessalonica amid much opposition, and they imitated them. And in turn, the Thessalonians became examples to others of this very reality, joyfulness and suffering. Second, they were characterized by this, faithfulness in proclamation. That's verse 8. We found that they were intentional in spreading the Word of God, the Word of God, the gospel, the good news about who Christ is and what He did in His life and death and resurrection to accomplish the forgiveness of sins for those who are His true followers. Third, we noted last time in verse 9, they were marked by this, genuineness of repentance. We found that they, in verse 9, turned from worshiping and serving false gods and false ideologies and false opinions and false Thinking and false perspective, they turn from worshiping that, and conversion is a change of worship, a change from worshiping any other false way of thinking and living, and turn to worshiping and serving the Lord. That's a true believer. And that turning, which means repentance, also became an ongoing characteristic of their lives from that point on. Well, today we find the fourth confirmation of their spiritual health in verse 10. I'll read it for us. They were saved for this purpose to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, from this verse, we can conclude that spiritually healthy Christians and churches are also marked by this, which is number four in our series eagerness for resolution. Eagerness for resolution. Now, as I've noted in past sermons, the reports about how these Thessalonian believers were doing spiritually had made their way to Paul, who was in Corinth when he wrote this letter back to them. And those reports included the fact that these believers in Thessalonica, they were living with a certain attitude about the future, an attitude of eagerness concerning the future return of the Lord. In other words, in turning from false worship to true worship, they were also doing this, look at verse 10 again, to wait for His Son from heaven. Now that word wait is used only here in the New Testament, and it refers to a certain kind of waiting, an expectant waiting, a a patient, even eager waiting waiting. They genuinely longed for the Lord's return at the end of the age, the consummation of what we know as human history here on earth, which is coming someday. They longed for that because they trusted that when he comes back, all things are going to be resolved concerning the wrongs of this world, this fallen world, this broken world that we live in. And they trusted that when he comes back, all things would be resolved concerning the promises of eternal life in heaven for God's people. In other words, they fully trusted that the Lord would bring eventually the fullness of the salvation for which they longed. Now that eager waiting for the Lord's return is a recurring theme in these letters that Paul wrote back to Thessalonica. You can look ahead to chapter 2, verse 19. You'll see it there just as a few examples. He writes in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you, meaning the believers, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Paul said, What thrills my heart is to know that there's a group of people there who love Christ. They'll they'll be in the Lord's presence at his coming. Chapter 3, verse 13. He writes there, God will establish your hearts without blame. He goes on to say, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In the second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 1, he mentions there in two one of 2 Thessalonians, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together in him, to him. And of course, there are many verses outside 1 and 2 Thessalonians that mention the second coming. Just listen to these. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7. We are awaiting eagerly, it says, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. A famous one, Philippians 3 verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, not in this broken world. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But regardless of what passage we find this mentioned in, the point is that this eagerness about the Lord's return is a normal and expected attitude that believers have, at least spiritually healthy believers. And to have an eager, expectant watching for Jesus' return is what gives us hope. It's put that way in Titus 2.13. We look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. His coming is also called the blessed hope. Our hope, you see, is not in the things of this world, not this broken world. Our hope is in thinking, not thinking, that all the issues that are wrong can be resolved in this world. Our hope is in the reality of the next world. And the consummation that brings to our hearts, the consummation of the future that brings the needed resolution of all things. To say it differently, the world here was never meant to fulfill God's people. Those who are not God's people have to grab all the joy and fun and happiness they possibly can in this life because it's all they have to look forward to. But for God's people, it's the next world. That will completely fulfill us. So what do we do? We steadfastly wait, just like this verse says. Looking eagerly toward the future, that is an important aspect that defines a true believer. Now there is a familiar, before we go on, I want to call to your attention this familiar passage in Acts. We, We need to keep it in mind as we go further in our discussion today. It's Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is that account of what we know as the ascension of Christ when he returned to heaven where he is until he comes back again, the ascension, Acts 1, starting verse 9. Let me read it. And after Christ had said these things to his disciples, in other words, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going... Behold, two men, angels, in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come, meaning come again in the future, in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. So the eagerness of these Thessalonians for the Lord's return, that presupposes something that they knew. They were aware of this, this passage. What happened here? They were aware of the ascension, that Jesus had ascended back to heaven. So as we keep the fact of the ascension in our minds, let's take now a more detailed look at how our verse describes the one who ascended and who is the one who is returning. The object of our eager longing is described in more than one way here, first of all. The one we wait for, look at verse 10, is the Son who comes from heaven. Now, later in chapter 4, verse 16, Paul will write this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. This means that Jesus is coming from the place where God the Father is. So many verses mention the fact that God is in the heavens. At the baptism, you'll remember. The baptism of Jesus, Matthew records in chapter 3 of his letter that a voice came from where? From heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That was the Father. Luke 11 verse 13 calls him our heavenly Father. So since the Father is in heaven, stating that the Son also comes from heaven, calls attention to the Son's equal deity with the Father, And it calls attention, therefore, to his equal sovereignty. That's why Peter referred to Christ this way in 1 Peter 3.22. Christ is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. As we sang, he is the king, the ruling king. So that's one way he's described here, the object of our eager longing. He's the son from heaven. There's a second way this one who ascended is described. And this description fits the theme of this Lord's day today. Verse 10 goes on to say, He is the one whom God raised from the dead. That term dead, just so you'll know, is plural. So more precisely, it says He was raised from among the dead ones. This fact... The resurrection of Jesus was at the very core of apostolic preaching, and therefore it became the universal confession of the church that Jesus is alive. He's risen. I'm going to read just several, about 10, examples and samples of the preaching. Acts 3.15. Jesus is the one put to death, but also the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. They preach that regularly. Acts ten forty: God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. Acts 13, verse 30, God raised him from the dead. In the epistles, we find it discussed. Romans 4, verse 24, Paul writes there, God raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Romans 6, 9, Christ was raised from the dead, never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. 2 Corinthians 4, 14, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. Colossians 2, 12, you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. 2 Timothy eight. remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended of David according to my gospel. And finally, 1 Peter one twenty one. God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This was at the core of apostolic preaching in the days of the early church. It's at the core of what we believe and proclaim today. And because it was at the core of preaching, we can be assured that this was the message that was also preached in Thessalonica when all these believers, these individuals came to Christ. And he mentions that later in chapter 4, verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Now think for a moment of the important connection between the resurrection and the future return of Christ. It's a logical connection, right? Because the future coming of Jesus would have been impossible without the resurrection from the dead. Only a living person comes again. So it is the resurrection of Jesus that established the ground of the return of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus that established the guarantee that he will return again. The father had promised that he would raise the son from the dead. And that's a staggering pledge to make, if you think about it. Hard to swallow. And it was for many. And yet he fulfilled that promise. So if he fulfilled that most unlikely promise, then God's promise to send Jesus back again is equally guaranteed to happen. If you think about it, those two doctrinal poles, the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus, they form the boundaries within which we live our lives. We live between those two poles, as it were. One pole marked resurrection, the other pole marked second coming, return. So yes, the resurrection is absolutely crucial to our faith. God raised Jesus from the dead because he was pleased with, he was satisfied by the sacrifice of his son. The father wanted to exalt the son to the heavenly throne from which he will return to exercise his sovereign right to rule as king of kings. So yes, the crucifixion and resurrection together are crucial to our faith. So, the one we wait for is, first of all, the Son from heaven, where the Father is. And second, He's the one whom God raised from the dead. There's a third way He's described here. This one we wait for is a historic person. He is Jesus, it says. He's named. That one from Nazareth, that man from Nazareth, it was that historic person who died on the cross, who was buried who was raised to new life again. And therefore, it is that same one who will come again from heaven. And that brings us to a fourth description of the one we eagerly wait for. It says in verse 10, he is the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. That term wrath is a common Greek term to students of the Bible. It's the term orge. O-R-G-E, it's a word in Greek that describes God's settled opposition to and displeasure with all sin. Not as mistakes and shortcomings and sin might be described by the world, but as the Bible describes it. Disobedience to God. Waywardness from His way a refusal to submit to him, sin, worshiping self instead of God. Wrath is going to be poured out on that. Now, we know from our study on Wednesday nights, from the study of the book of Revelation, that God's wrath is going to be poured out on the earth during the future tribulation period. But it also is the judgment that will be experienced eternally by Satan his demons, those who have followed him, and all those who have rejected the Lord and his truth, all those who are worshiping something other than the Lord. They'll be eternally judged. Now, here in this context, I believe it is best to understand the wrath here mentioned that second way as God's eternal judgment against sin. That's the wrath that's mentioned later in chapter 5, verse 9 where it says, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's put in contrast there to being saved. We're saved or we're facing God's eternal wrath. But either way, you look at what this wrath is talking about here, whether it's the wrath on poured out on earth through the judgments of the tribulation or eternal wrath it's, it's a wonderful promise either way that God's people are rescued from something, rescued from the execution of God's just judgment against all those who violate or oppose or ignore his law. Now, there's something about God that people don't mind talking about and thinking about and affirming, and that's the love of God. That's a great subject to most people. And indeed, it's a it's something that's real. His love is real. In 1 John 4 8, it says that about God. God is love. And the great verse in John, John chapter 3, verse 16 for God so loved the world, the, the world of false worshippers. It's not making a statement about individuals, but the the world itself that individuals live in, this lost, fallen world. He so loved this broken world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. So yes, the love of God is a great subject, it's real, but although the New Testament proclaims the love of God, that does not negate this truth, the truth of His judgment, His wrath. Listen to a few verses again. Romans 2 verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath, making deposits, every sin, when you're outside of Christ, making deposits, storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Ephesians 5 verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. There's a lot of empty words out there. Just do the best you can. This, all this stuff in religion, I mean, we've progressed past that today. We're so enlightened today. We're so smart today that we can even choose whether we want to be a boy or a girl. We're very smart people. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For the wrath of God comes upon the sons, daughters, of disobedience. Revelation 19, verse 15, he, Christ, the one who returns, treads the wine press. It's this picture of the, of the press pressing on the grapes, pressing out the Jews to make wine. He treads the wine press of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, these Thessalonians had been saved out of pagan paganism and There were many gods of Paul's day, pagan gods, and people believed that their false gods did display wrath. It wasn't that they'd never heard the subject of wrath before, but in their false religious system, the the wrath of the so-called gods, that wrath was inexplicable at times, if not all the times. It was impulsive, capricious, we'd say. They would even interpret natural disasters that way. It's the gods are angry. God's wrath is different than that. It's not an impulsive outburst of anger. It's not a fickle outburst of anger. Rather, it is His right, just, holy, and burning resolve to punish all evil. The fact is, Apart from him being a God of wrath, God would be unworthy of worship because it would mean he's a deity who winks at sin or a deity who tolerates evil, who tolerates rebellion against his own law and sovereign rights as God. But God does exercise his holy wrath. Romans 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Refusing to hear what the word of God says, refusing to believe that that's true, refusing to think that that's the only way. Our world is known for this, covering up the truth, suppressing the truth, substituting the truth with their own truth. Has does God see it? I'll read it again, Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all that, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth. But true believers, you see, are assured of something. They're assured here in this verse, in many verses, that they will not suffer this wrath because of Jesus, the one who was raised from the dead. He rescues us from all that wrath. Romans 5 9, having, having now been justified by his blood, saved, acquitted, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. It's the greatest news ever. Now, the corresponding interesting fact is that the same Jesus that it says here rescues or saves his people from wrath he's the very one who's going to execute divine wrath against all those who disobey god 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 through 9 the lord jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire Still talking about him dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty, it says in verse 9, of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Eternal destruction. So we are grateful for what this verse says. We're grateful that Jesus is the rescuer, he's the deliverer, he's the savior of those who are otherwise headed for this wrath, this divine punishment, eternal judgment. But the contrast is also true for those outside of Christ who want to go their own way. There is no hope for rescue from the wrath of God. So, Jesus' first coming, we love to talk about that because of what it accomplished. It had the aim of, of redeeming his people from the, the sins by his blood on the cross. He died on the cross to remove the guilt and the curse of sin from his people and then was raised from the dead to prove that his sacrifice was effective and accepted. But his second coming completes this salvation. It's resolution of all things. Because then he'll actually deliver us from the very sphere of this world, the power of everything, cursed by sin, that's deserving wrath. So on one hand, those sinners who reject Christ should actually dread thinking about this. They should dread hearing this today. They should dread the thought of divine wrath against sin. Those who have trusted in Jesus alone for their salvation face the eternal judge without fear. He's already paid the penalty of our sins by bearing them on the cross and was raised from the dead to prove that that death was effective and satisfying God's wrath for His people. Indeed, He who is coming to fully deliver us from the wrath to come is this Jesus, a wrath that will be poured out on all those who have rejected Him. So marks of spiritual health of individuals and a church, joyfulness in suffering, faithfulness in proclamation, genuineness of repentance, and eagerness for resolution that's coming. There's more. Confirmation and marks of true believers, but that's what we find in first Thessalonians one and what a thought that true believers with nothing to fear from God's judgment and literally everything to gain, we are those who eagerly look forward to his return. Let me give you some concluding concluding thoughts this morning to ponder as you leave today and as you go about your lives. Here's conclusion number one that's fair to glean from this passage. It's this, Christ is ministering to us now. I said we're between two poles. The resurrection that then led to his ascension back to heaven. That's where he is until he returns, the other pole. And since he has not returned yet, We should not forget that he is active as our great high priest now. And so scripture tells us to do something, to draw near to him for help. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, there's the ascension, Jesus, the Son of God, the one we've identified in our passage, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathizes sympathize with our weaknesses, but he's one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, when he was here on earth, he tasted all the categories of temptation that we face, not every single and individual temptation that a a teenager would face, or a man would face, or a woman would face. That's particular to them. But all the categories of temptation, he faced them all. Even temptation stronger than we will ever face, yet without sin, it says. Therefore, let us draw near, and that is put in a tense that's present tense, draw near continually with confidence to the throne of grace, We need that now, see, between those two poles so that we can have joyfulness and suffering, so we can be faithful to keep proclaiming and keep repenting of our sins and confessing our sins. We don't have to fear confessing our sins when we keep failing. We don't have to stay away from the throne of grace. All of our sins are paid for. So draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. What you find there... It's not God with a big stick ready to hit you for messing up again. We find and receive mercy, it says, not getting what we deserve. And we find grace getting what we don't deserve in the time of need. The right kind of mercy, the right kind of grace, the right kind of help is always there available at the throne of grace for God's people between the poles. Christ is ministering to us now as the ascended Lord. That's a very important conclusion. Here's another one. Conclusion number two, we are to long for heaven. I said it's a a mark, it's a confirmation of genuine saving faith. We lose sight of that sometimes, but we are to long eagerly for heaven. Here's how Paul says it in Colossians 3 verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. In that paragraph, it talks about setting your affection on things above. Set your affection, set your mind on things above that are are not the things of earth, this broken world. We have to deal with the things of this world. We have to fulfill our responsibilities. We have to pay our bills. We have to take care of our families. We have to go to work. We have to mow the yard. I'm just thinking ahead this week. <laughs> I've learned as great as it is to have green grass because you fertilize it, it creates another problem. It keeps growing. I just mowed it, and Now I've got to mow it again. That's all stuff we have to do but we're to live our lives not mired down with all that and thinking that's the most important thing. It's not. It's the things above, not the things that are on earth. So we're to long for that. A couple weeks ago, really, even before I was preparing for this sermon, I I read and studying for the book of Revelation, I was reading Pastor John MacArthur's commentary on some of that. And came across this little section where he discusses, since the chapter 21 of Revelation is the new heaven and the new earth that's waiting in the future for us, he discusses this fact that a genuine and strong longing for heaven is not only normal for Christians, it has many important benefits for us. So I wrote him down. Let me just summarize him for him what he wrote. One, It's one of the surest indicators of genuine salvation, longing for heaven. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 20 and 21. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. That's really the same thing Paul said, set your mind, your affection on things above. Jesus said it this way, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're recognized by what we treasure. That's where our heart is. Our heart is where, is where the things are that we treasure, and we treasure the things where our heart is. So a heart focused on heaven means that this is what we treasure. And that only fits those who have been redeemed. So it's a sure indicator of genuine salvation. Second, he wrote, it prompts the pursuit of holiness in our lives so that we develop and exemplify true Christian character. First John chapter 3, verse 3 says this, everyone who has his hope fixed on him and his return, everything about that, purifies himself as he is pure. It has a purifying effect on us to long for heaven. To set our minds on heaven. And the reason is that those who set their mind on things above, their minds on things above, are less likely to become snared by the earthly temptations, which John describes this way in 1 John chapter 2. All sin falls under these three categories the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what the world offers us and tempts us with. We're less likely to be ensnared by those things by setting our minds on heaven. So pondering heaven, eagerly longing for the resolution that's going to come is a preservative against sin, if you will, so to speak. Third, he writes this, longing for heaven brings joy and comfort in trials. Those who focus on heaven's glories can endure anything in this life better and not lose their joy. Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians 4.17, momentary light affliction, that's life between the poles, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that's being built up for us beyond all comparisons. Pondering heaven reminds us that life here is temporary and therefore suffering is temporary. It's only part of this world, between the poles. Four, there's five by the way, four. It will help us maintain the strength we need to faithfully serve the Lord now. Here's a, a mathematical equation. Those who are negligent and lazy about following Christ daily and serving the Lord and the Lord's work, those who make only a token sort of minimal effort to serve Him and to pursue obedience, they demonstrate little regard for eternal things. They foolishly think that the reward for pursuing earthly things is greater than the reward for pursuing heavenly things. But when we set our minds on heaven, our priorities end up being affected. We tend to live more for things that count, the things that count for eternity. So pondering heaven and longing for heaven does give us strength to faithfully serve the Lord now. And lastly, Pastor MacArthur writes this, Longing for heaven gives the honor to God that he deserves because the center point of heaven is God. So if we're focusing on heaven, we'll be focusing on the supreme one in heaven, and that honors him. It pleases him. So do what I have to do. I have to pray about this frequently. Pray for an increase in your expectation for the Lord's return, your eager longing that prompts even more hope in your heart. Pray for that. Pray that God will help you long for heaven. That leads to conclusion number three, really. This is connected to all that. It's a right conclusion to come to. Waiting for the Lord does not equate, then, to passivity. Waiting for the Lord does not mean that we hunker down in some commune somewhere and pull the blinds down and shut the garage doors and, you know, sneak out just to eat the vegetables that were growing so we don't have to go into town. No. There's a balance here to hoping, longing for the return of the Lord, and the balance For us to keep busy now serving the Lord and pursuing obedience now. Our waiting, on one hand, does have a passive component to it. I'm not denying that. We do live our lives setting our minds on heaven. We live our lives, in a sense, with an eye on the horizon, waiting for Jesus to return and victory over the world. At the same time, the waiting that Paul is describing here has an active component to it. While we anticipate Jesus' return, we are to diligently seek ways to serve him, serve other people, and pursue personal holiness and obedience. To say it differently, our expectation about the future is not an excuse for laziness in the present. Let me read this in 1 Thessalonians 5. You can turn over there. I'm going to start verses 4 and 6. He's speaking of the future day of the Lord. In this context of 1 Thessalonians 5, in in verse 4, he says this, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We're of the light. We are not of night nor of darkness. That's not our world. So then, let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. And you get down to verse 14, and it begins a list of what it means to be alert and sober To live as if we're people of the light. Just some bullet points here. Sorry, verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Verse 21, examine everything, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. There's no passivity in any of that. Serving God and eagerly looking forward to His return are not antithetical but complementary. The last conclusion is this, number four, brings us back to the theme of the day, what surfaced in verse 10. Here's the conclusion, belief in the resurrection is necessary to be saved. It's at the core of preaching. It's the core of the gospel message as well, not just the crucifixion. Don't leave him hanging on the cross in your thinking and proclamation. Belief in the resurrection is also necessary to be saved. I know that from Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, there's his lordship, that's who he is, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Plus, as I said, it's that resurrected Lord who's going to judge all mankind. When Paul preached in Athens that time in Acts chapter 17, that great message that he preached, he even said that. In Acts 17 verse 31, it says, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. What man? Whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. It's Jesus. Jesus. So we must believe that he's been raised from the dead. He is the one who will judge all. We must believe this. That's why we proclaim this message to everyone we can. Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. There's salvation in nothing else. Human improvement, turning over a new leaf, trying to do better. There's no hope in that. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus, the resurrected and returning Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this insight into how you define spiritual health so we have the standard that we're to pursue and pray for. And Lord, forgive us for our passivity. Forgive us for our Longing after the things of this world and setting the, our minds on the things of this world only. Thank you for using this truth today to draw us up as a magnet, as it were, out of the mire of all that, so we can remember what your people really look like, who they really are, how they really live. May we put this into practice. And I do pray, Lord, for anyone here who's deluding themselves into thinking they're fine just living life their own way, I pray that you would break through that pride, humble them to come to the place to say, forgive me, be merciful to me, I am a sinner, and save me. Do that work only you can do in Christ's name. Amen.